Good Sunday morning. This is the Arts Section. I'm your host, Gary Zydek. Welcome to WDCB's Arts and Culture magazine. Every week we spotlight creative people, events, and ideas in the Chicago area arts community, while also fostering broader discussions on music, film, theater, and other creative endeavors. Today on the program, I'll catch up with Chicago Shakespeare Theater's new artistic director, Edward Hall. He's taken over the creative reins after the company's founder, Barbara Gaines, stepped down last year. I'll check in with local jazz musician Sean Maxwell to talk about his new Joliet-inspired album. Later, the dueling critics Carrie Reed and Jonathan Abarbanel will join me to review a new interpretation of Shakespeare's Richard III, and I'll take you with to check out a new contemporary art exhibit at the Driehaus Museum that was inspired by Greek mythology. All that's coming up. Thanks for making some time for arts and culture this morning. It's a new day at Chicago Shakespeare Theater. Last summer, the company announced its choices to lead the Navy Pier-based theater into the future. Edward Hall is the new artistic director. He succeeds founding artistic director Barbara Gaines, who stepped down after 37 years. Kimberly Motes has taken over as executive director. She succeeds Chris Henderson, who departed the company after three-plus decades. They both started in October. Of course, Hall was already planning on being in Chicago this winter to direct a new production of Richard III, so the timing worked out well for the celebrated English theater artist. The production opened earlier this month and closes in two weeks. The play follows the maneuvering of a power-lusting maniac who stops at nothing to take the throne of a divided country. It's likely no coincidence that this work is returning to the stage in 2024. I recently caught up with Hall at Chicago Shakespeare Theater to talk about his approach to this version of Richard III and how he's settling into his first Chicago winter. So I know you've spent time in Chicago before, but now you live here. How are you finding the city? I'm really enjoying it, actually. It's such a dynamic, interesting city to be in. I mean, I've always enjoyed working here and I've enjoyed my visits here, but actually sitting here now for a period of time, and I've been here, I think, four and a half months, which has flown by. Mm -hmm. But the culture, the art, the music, the the architecture, the history. I've just finished Devil in the White City, which was a great read. Mm -hmm. I'm going to Jackson Park, I'm going to look at all that. Um, And the, the, you know, the the theater. And I think there's just, there's so much going on in the city, but also it has this, I don't know, it has this sense of community that I'm finding, um, I'm, I'm slowly beginning to get a feel for. Yeah. Everyone is interested in each other okay. and communities and neighborhoods. And I know it's a neighborhood city. I felt very welcomed and that it's a warm place. And I know there are, like every big city, it has its problems and issues. But um, I'm finding it a very welcoming, stimulating place. A couple of weeks ago when we had that uh Sub-Zero, that didn't scare you off? No, I like drama in my weather, <laughs> so I'm very happy, actually. It's the, it's the sort of middle-of-the-road grayness I don't like, oh, okay. so no, the, the, the cold was cool. Okay. So this production of Richard III, you were already set to direct this even before you got the, the new role. Yes, it was something that I'd planned to do here a number of years ago, actually, and then, um, of course, that thing got in the way that we don't like talking about anymore when the world shut down, and finally here we are. So... 
it's a happy accident really that this is that I'm directing a play at the theatre here so early on in my in my tenure as as a new AD. So I'm delighted about that actually. Um, so I I think we we set the dates for this about two years ago finally. So um, so yeah yeah and, and Katie Sullivan who plays Richard the Third. Um, I had worked with her in London, Cost of Living, with the British premiere of that play then, and that's where I felt like I, w- I want to do this play and I'd like to do this play with her. So that's, that's where it all sort of began. So the idea of casting Katie Sullivan as Richard goes back quite a while. Just working with her on that previous production sparked something? Yeah, it, it, it did pop into my head um, because she has... Of all sorts of reasons. I mean, Arnie, the, the, the part that she was Tony nominated for in Cost of Living when she, she did it on Broadway here, it was such a deep, emotional dive to play that woman and to play her without any sentiment either, um, which she did brilliantly. And she had, to me, I felt like she had the wit, the sense of humour, the technical ability and the, the work ethic to give us a really extraordinary Richard. Um, and these parts are huge, you know, and now we, in the modern theatre, we do eight shows a week. Shakespeare, they didn't do eight shows a week. There was no actor who was required to play that part eight times a week. So they're, they're big, huge undertakings, and I felt that um, she also had the, the work ethic and the stamina to, to pull that off. Um, so. Depending on the adaptation, sometimes... Uh the Richard character will have like a hunchback or like a, a limp, but from what I've read in, in this production, there there won't be any of that. Well, in this production, we've we've lent into um, Casey's body and how it is and how she is, so we're using that as much as we can to present different versions of Richard, depending on being the chameleon that he is, the kind of persona he wants to present to whoever he's talking to, depending on what he wants to get out of them and how he wants to manipulate them. We did start from the point of, um, I said to Katie right at the beginning, what people forget often is that Richard was a warrior. He grew up in a martial world, in the middle of a civil war. War and fighting was all he knew growing up, and he grew up on the battlefields of Britain with his father. He watched his father get killed in battle, um, and he's a veteran of many battles himself. So when we found his real skeleton under the car park in Leicester a few years ago, which revealed to us that the real Richard actually did have scoliosis on his spine, so he did have um, a disability with, with the way he held his spine. However he moved through the world, he'd worked out how to do it and still be a pretty formidable opponent when he's wielding a sword. So we started from that point, and, and I, I said to her, so you know, if we work backwards from there, um, you can also um, start to investigate through the way y- you are and bring your lived experience to the part, how sometimes certainly in, in the play, I think Richard is a product of the time in which he lived and also the experience of living in his body that he'd been given by the world around him. The world around him abused him for the way he looked constantly, um, assumed that he was evil because of it, that his soul was somehow incomplete and he was somehow a child of the devil. His mother never spoke to him really. They had a very, a very complicated relationship, I think. And his father, who did treat him, 
much more as for who he was. Once he died, Richard was left with nothing. So very much at the beginning of the play, Richard says to the audience, well, the world has nothing for me. Everybody, we have peace now, we've finished fighting, everyone's drinking and partying and having a great time. That's not my world, that's not the world in which I live or I'm allowed to live. So I'm going to try and make it a place I'd like to be in. So to a certain extent, it's like, be careful what you wish for. You know, we, we, he is slightly a creation of the people around him. And I think Katie's lived experience, really, she's drawn on that and has used that in order to inhabit that character. So we have lent into how she is in terms of how we present and play this man. If you're just tuning in, I'm Gary Zydek. This is the arts section. I'm talking to Chicago Shakespeare Theater's new artistic director, Edward Hall, about the current production of Richard III. I know you've directed Richard several times over your career. Does your approach to, to Richard or any of the works that you've done, does that shift over time? It does. I mean, I, I first directed the play in... 1997, I think, in Japan, in Tokyo, did a Japanese production of it with a lot of Japanese movie stars, and it was very, you know, it was a, a lot of money was spent on it. It was a big, huge production, and um, it didn't. It was it was very hard for me to keep control of it because I didn't know the play that well, and I was trying to understand roughly what they were saying in the Japanese, which was quite complicated. So I, yeah, that was my first go. And But I think when you come back to these plays, you you know, I've, I've, it's 10 years or so since I've, I've worked on this play in detail, longer, I think. And you, you realize when you go back to them that the world has shifted and you've shifted and you've changed and your responses to them change. And then you're hearing the play very differently with a group of actors who are um, responding in different ways to the characters. So it's always different. And and when you're dealing with deep, brilliant texts, there are always exciting new solutions and answers that present themselves. You don't essentially ever get bored. I, I, I like to think you get better at the plays the more you do them, <laughs> these big, complicated plays. Um, certainly I've done Winter's Tale a few times, and the same is, is, is true with that. It's a difficult, complicated play. I think I, it took me about three productions to work out properly how to do it. So, like, your lens has changed. Do you think about how the audience, today's audience, is going to receive something like this compared to 10 years ago? Um, yeah, to a degree, maybe. I mean, you know, Richard is set in a very polarized society um, of extreme behavior and extreme opinions, um, a world in which complicated issues are not really discussed in detail. You're either for something or you're, you're against something. And if you don't speak up for something, then that implies you're against it. So it's a very difficult and dangerous environment, political environment, um, although their political life was, was different to ours. But essentially those principles feel to me very current right now. Um, and when you have a, 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 a world like that, a society like that, it is, it is very hard to, um, to work through issues without resorting to violence. And that's where the play is set, and it sort of explains that. And it, it it is because of that brutal and extreme environment in which the play happens that Richard is able to move through the world in the way he does, because he plays on people's narcissism and greed, and that's how he gets up the ladder. And I I think doing it today has been very interesting for me because I. I feel in public life, 
it's very complicated for us now to discuss complex issues without, for, for fear of, of not being pilloried and our, our words and ideas being taken out of context. And people, so there's a degree of fear in terms of public conversations. And so maybe that, maybe that's not a good thing. Maybe that has stopped us discussing in public the things that we need to be discussing, the gray areas of life that are the complex places where civilization and the growth of community lives. And this play talks about what happens when that, that level of empathy and discussion and temperance and balance, people listening to each other, when, when the world is not like that, you get Richard III. And that's, that's when people like Richard III are able to flourish. Obviously your focus is on Richard III right now, but are you working on next season? Yeah, very much so. Yes, so planning next season. L yeah, we, I, I, I hope people will receive our next season big, bold, ambitious. I mean, Kim Motes and I, um, new ED here, we, we arrived together. We are both uh, excited and optimistic about the future, actually. And I think both of us feel that audiences have been going back to the theatre um, in Chicago. I know there are, there are certainly there post-pandemic issues, but we feel um, excited about the appetite for live theatre in this city and certainly going out into the city and seeing work on the various stages where the work is good and um, it's what people want to see. The theatres are full. So we are actually trying to expand our offering here at CST considerably and grow the whole institution and um, grow our audience base and sort of breathe outwards, I think, and be ambitious in our, in our first season together. Edward, thanks so much. Thank you very much. Pleasure talking to you. That's Edward Hall. He's the new artistic director at Chicago Shakespeare Theater and the director of the company's current production of Richard III. It's running through March 3rd. Go to chicagoshakes.com for more info. And stay tuned. The Dueling Critics, Carrie Reed and Jonathan Abarbanel, will be reviewing the play later in the show. And a quick reminder, if you do listen to the arts section on WDCB Sunday mornings, thank you. Also make sure to check out the show's website over at theartssection.org. There you can find past episodes and individual features available to listen to on demand anytime you want, plus pictures and links that go along with all the features you hear on the show. And if you ever want to reach out with a comment or question, you can reach me via email, gzydic at wdcb.org or on social media twitter and instagram with the handle at onairgary you're listening to the arts section i'm gary zydek saxophonist sean maxwell has been a celebrated piece of chicago's jazz scene for 25 years Maxwell's ambitious approach to creating music has been praised by Downbeat, the Chicago Tribune, and the Jazz Times. Nearly 20 years after the release of his first album, Maxwell has returned to his roots for album number 12. It's called J-Town Sweet. The album came out a few months ago. 
The compositions are inspired by Maxwell's formative years coming up in Illinois' third largest city, Juliet. I caught up with Maxwell to talk about the creative process behind J-Town Suite and what it was like growing up in Juliet. So was this musical love letter to your hometown something that had been in the back of your mind for a while or was something in recent years that inspired you to, to take this on? My last, this is my 12th album, and especially in the last four or five, I always think, why am I doing this? It, in a good way, you know, why am I writing these these songs, these tunes? You know, is there an overall concept? If I'm just writing random things, I, I, I've done that, you know? So I'm always trying to think of what if I did an album about this or I did an album, this is the theme. And uh, my, my business partner, Nick Ipers, the engineer, producer, and everything, he and I have meetings, and I bounce stuff off of him, and I've, I've mentioned J-Town Suite, like, for the last four or five years. And he's like, nah, dude, I don't think that's what we should do. And then finally I said it, knowing he was going to say no, and he's like, okay, yeah, we should do that. He's like, you're obviously very passionate about it. You've been pitching it to me for years now. <laughs> And so each of the tunes on the album is inspired by something connected to your experience growing up in Joliet? Yeah, I mean, uh, born and raised in Joliet, Illinois. I lived there um, until I went off to college, and I still live in the area. And it, it, there's a lot of meaning there for me, uh, a lot of things that happened and a lot of places and people that kind of made me into the person I am, good or bad. <laughs> it comes from Joliet, and I just kind of, you know, I've been joking about doing it for a while, and it's like, you know what? Uh, I've written a lot of tunes. Why don't I actually cover this like this subject and actually just go for it? I think for for some people, they might have preconceived notions about what it's like in Joliet. Good or bad? Is that is that fair to say? Uh, yeah, yeah. I think that's a polite way of saying it. <laughs> I think I even say it in, in uh, Neil Tesser writes a liner notes. I, I wear that kind of as a badge of honor. You know, it's it's. Um, I am not a super tough guy, but. Uh, I've I've gone through some some rough things there, you know, and it, it was it yeah I guess that is an easy thing to say. The album's opening track, Steelman March, is a nod to the band program at Maxwell's High School. Juliet Central High School was the first band program, school band program in the country, and it dates back um, the the original director A. R. McAllister. Uh, was friends with um, John Philip Sousa. <laughs> and back then, you know, marches and marching bands were all the big things. So the um, the fight song of the school was the Steelman March. It was a very marchy kind of thing in 4-4. And to kind of honor that, especially because I was going there in the 90s when I was listening to Dr. Dre and Snoop Dogg and different things like that and rock stuff, um, I took the overall kind of premise of that, that march in 4-4 and I kind of made it a little more angular. I, I, I changed the time signature to five. So if you were marching, it's almost like you're marching with a limp. And kind of made it a little uh, marching band meets a little bit of funkiness. So did you play in the, the band? Oh, yeah. I was a, I was a clarinet player. I, did, I didn't actually start saxophone until I got to Joliet Junior College. Right. But, I was yeah, I played clarinet from fourth grade all the way through high school I was in the Joliet Central band we were really good back then I, I always want to be different there, there are 
even just in the Chicago area, a ton of great saxophonists, composers, flautists, and, and I don't want to sound like any of them. And I think I, I take chords and put them in maybe unexpected ways or, you know, different. And in using that, it, it's it's always been there for me. I think just as a whole, if you think of the whole album together, I've leaned into that much more and made it very consistent from tune to tune. If you're just tuning in, I'm Gary Zydek. You're listening to the art section. I'm talking with a renowned saxophonist Sean Maxwell about his new album, J-Town Sweet. You reference maybe like a more upbeat tune. And there's like a story behind this too. And I wanted to ask you about uh, the tune called Jerry. And this is somebody, I'll let you tell the story that was instrumental in your career but uh side note uh it says in the liner notes he's the person who who tuned you into uh wdcb yeah well first of all jerry lewis very important guy for me i started clarinet in fourth grade and i played clarinet i still play clarinet but i played strictly clarinet all the way through graduating high school joliet central high school and when i graduated i had no path i wasn't going to college i i just had no plan i don't know what i was going to do and a couple of weeks before classes started at Joliet Junior College, my parents, which I was still living with, sat me down and said, okay, dude, you're either going to school or you're moving out. And, and uh, I couldn't do that. <laughs> so I, I signed up for classes at Joliet Junior College. I had known Jerry for several years before that because I was good friends with his son through high school. And at that point, you know, he just, he knew me well enough. He pretty much, he said, hey, you're going to be in jazz band. I'm going to get you a saxophone. And I was like, okay, I'm not going to fight with him. Thank God he did because, you know, I still do play clarinet, but I don't think I was going to be in the Chicago Symphony Orchestra or anything like that. And then when I started at JJC, again, he got me a saxophone that I used for the two years I was there, was a great mentor. And he was talking to us. He was like, do you guys listen to jazz? And we're like, "Eh, no, not really. Where where do you do that? Um, And then he's like, okay, you got to check out. There's a station called WDCP, 90.9 FM. And I think at the time, you guys played jazz six hours a day or something like that. It's it's expanded over the years, but he was like six hours straight every Monday (laughs) through Friday. And I do remember... Well, I was checking it out and then just listening went nonstop. I do remember the first time, first time I heard Bruce Oscar wow. <laughs> introducing something. I was like, oh, okay. And yeah, that, that's, that's how I came across 90.9. Let's listen to a little bit of Jerry. So we all have kind of like, our, you know, these moments in our life that take us on different trajectories. Like, oh, what if that didn't happen? But that's kind of crazy for you. I mean, here you are, professional jazz player with 12 albums under your belt, but could have gone in a different direction, it sounds like. Totally. It's also just the kind of person I am now. I'm very goal-oriented. I, I have a path. I, I'm a scheduled person. And I'm thinking back to when I went to Joliet Junior College, I was just kind of nothing. <laughs> I was just there, you know, and I like I had no aspirations. And I do think Jerry getting into jazz, getting the saxophone and then some other teachers and, and you know, people driving me kind of got me on the right path to do this. But yeah, otherwise, I, I have no idea, you know, I'd be coin attended at a car wash or something. Not, not that that's a bad thing, but you right. know, not, right. not, not maybe not what I wanted to do. Did you realize pretty soon that you had uh, an aptitude for sax or is what started you on this path? I liked it a lot. I really enjoyed it. And I really 
was I really got into jazz, just the whole aspect of it. I, I really liked the fact that not only were you playing melodies that were composed, but the improvisation of it. And, and the fact that, you know, especially saxophone, well, this guy sounds like this, but this guy sounds like this, and this guy sounds like, and everyone had their own thing. And just having their own, a lot of them composing, that's, that's what really got in me in the beginning. And I, I remember Jerry uh, Lewis at JJC t- teaching a, um, a jazz appreciation class, first time, and a lot of things I was learning about stuff. It's where I kind of learned who Duke Ellington was. And I remember him saying something like, Duke Ellington is not just jazz, but the most prolific American composer. And he said something like he has 100 or 200 like notable compositions. And, you know, I hadn't composed a single note at that point. But in my head, I was like, I want to write 100 tunes. <laughs> I think right. I think I've now on album, I have 130 compositions oh, out wow. there. So I'm getting close to Duke. And <laughs> I should recant that now because someone's going to say, you think you're Duke Ellington? <laughs> no, I did not say that. Uh, but um, yeah, I just liked all that. You know, it took me several years. It wasn't until like really a year or two after college that I totally got my, my stuff together <laughs> and really kind of got on it. But uh, yeah, just that whole thing, the fact that I can be me and not be like anyone else, even though might be some similarities, being me with the volume turned way up. That that just seemed really cool to me. That'll be the the headline when I post this story. Sean Maxwell. <laughs> I'm the next Duke Ellington. <laughs> just kidding. Oh, well, you know, I guess if we get um, hate likes, <laughs> then, then cool. The whole clarinet thing. So it was more of like a classical clarinet? Were you more into classical music? Yeah, yeah. And you know what? I love that. And I still play clarinet. It's just saxophone has become my main instrument. Flute's probably become my second instrument. Clarinet's got bumped down to three, but uh, I still do a lot with that. I think I am what I am, and part of what makes me different is I have a very strong classical background. Music theory-wise, just uh, I started taking clarinet lessons in fifth grade from a, a Joliet legend, a guy named Clayton Shorey. I think he passed away about 20 years ago, and I think he was like 110 or something like that. And he instilled in me a lot of basics that, in my opinion, a lot of jazz guys maybe gloss over or never do. Um, I'm very good at sight reading. I'm good at just reading actual hard clarinet classical music. So I went to saxophone. I had that kind of instilled in me already. And when I compose, I do a lot of things that kind of lead into my classical kind of chops. I think even if you hear me on this new album or any other albums, um, a lot of my technique and even sometimes I'll sometimes on purpose play what I call dorky jazz, just kind of some straight classical kind of stuff like that. These days, what are you listening to? Do you listen to a lot of jazz or do you try to mix it up? I try to mix it up. I will be the first to tell you I am. I don't have my finger on the pulse of what's new and hip with the kids now. Uh, I've I've gotten comfortable enough to know that I'm maybe not official, but to them I'm the old guy. <laughs> I listen to all kinds of styles of music. I do um, mainly because I consider myself a modern jazz musician. I'm very interested in hearing what other more modern jazz musicians are doing throughout the country, or and I, even around the world, I should say. So I'm, I'm, I have much more into that in jazz and I still listen to a lot of the, the classic you know standard jazz but I'd say more modern things with improvisation and just people who are trying to be different and, and not that I want to copy them but I'm always kind of listening and going like hmm what well, they did that what else can I do that's different because I just I don't I just don't want to be doing the same thing all the time right 
so at the the beginning i mean i i used the term love letter to to juliet <laughs> working on this did it bring up positive memories about coming up in, in juliet well in a weird way i have a lot of positive and negative memories in juliet but in a weird way they're all positive uh because even bad things that happen i i you know i look at it and go huh well that's that made me tougher or or you know that's just something that happened i try to maybe i'm getting that age where i just am seeing things more fondly than they really were but no no i i had a good time even on like subjects or whatever that we touch about that were maybe not the the best memories i, I had a great time just kind of fleshing that out and like turning it into a musical idea it's a very dorky composer thing to say sorry no no do you get to do you go back often my parents still live there. I I, uh, I played the Juliet Jazz Festival about a month or so ago, which was kind of cool. Yeah, I'm, I'm back there here and there. But yeah, yeah, it's 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 Juliet. <laughs> <laughs> that should be the uh, like their tourism board. Like it's Juliet. <laughs> <laughs> and I try to go and hit uh, Joe's Hot Dogs every once in a while if I'm if I'm in town teaching a clinic or a gig or something like that. And you, you got a, a tune here that's inspired called Fries or Rings in the Back. Oh, yeah. Have you ever been to Joe's Hot Dogs? I haven't been, but I was oh, talking to my wife about it. I, I, it's a Joliet like, foundation that you have to go to. It's yeah. a business-owned or a family-owned uh, hot dog stand that I think it's changed since COVID, but they used to be open till 2, 2 a.m. Oh, okay. And uh, if you order even a small fry, it comes in a huge brown paper bag that you can see through with all the, the grease. grease. Yep. Yeah, and it, it's it's just, uh, if you like to eat, oh, hopefully they're not getting mad at me, if you'd like to eat some great unhealthy food, especially in the middle of the night, that's the best place to be. <laughs> well, Sean, thanks so much for, for coming in to talk with us. Thank you for having me, man. I had a blast. That saxophonist Sean Maxwell, his new album J-Town Suite is out. He'll be performing at the venue in Aurora on Friday, February 23rd. You can find more information at seanmaxwell.com. And you are listening to the Arts Section. My name's Gary Zydek. I'm joined now by the dueling critics, Carrie Reed and Jonathan Abarbanel. Good morning. Oh, good, good morning, morning, Gary. If you're uh, looking for a story about a ruthless attempt to grab power at all costs, but don't want to watch cable news, we've got the play for you. <laughs> Chicago Shakespeare Theaters presenting a new production of Richard III. The Shakespeare play gets a new interpretation from Edward Hall, Chicago Shakespeare's new artistic director, who I spoke with earlier in the show. Tony Award nominee, Paralympic runner, and Lombard resident Katie Sullivan takes on the title role here. We'll turn to Jonathan first. You say this new production of Richard III impresses you, but doesn't excite you. Yeah, this production impresses me without exciting me. And, you know, the constituent elements, acting, movement, the design elements, and even some unusual music choices, they're all well done and intelligent. And yet, 
for me, the thrill is gone. And maybe it's because the play itself is too familiar. I've seen it many, many times with its witty but self-serving and thoroughly cynical and despicable title character. Or maybe directors simply have run out of ways to refresh it. I've seen productions set in contemporary corporate boardrooms, others set in 1930s fascist Europe. Europe. This production stars an actor with disabilities, as you have noted, Gary, as Richard, as if to personify the play's depiction of Richard as deformed. And, you know, that's been done before, too. In fact, right here in Chicago a few years ago. Even the setting, which I interpret as a slaughterhouse, is something that Edward Hall himself used back in his 2003 debut at Chicago Shakespeare Theater with a production called Rose Rage, which is based on Shakespeare's Henry VI plays. So, um, yeah, so for those and a few other reasons, I was impressed without being excited by the show. Though I will say the production certainly never bored me, and Katie Sullivan in the title role certainly is dynamic and has the voice and impressive athletic agility. Carrie, I'll toss it to you. Yeah, I have much the same reaction. I will recommend it on the grounds that it is a lot of fun to watch. It's flashy. There are some great performances. If you are new to the story, then I think there you could certainly find worse interpretations. Um, it's interesting. The night before I saw the Chicago uh, this, this Chicago Shakespeare production, I happened to watch uh, a recording that I'd made some months ago and hadn't had a chance to watch of uh, two years ago. I think it was done at Shakespeare in the Park in New York. It's Ney Guerrera, the actor who several of our listeners may remember from Wakanda, uh, playing Richard. So also the idea of having a woman play Richard is not new either. So that production was interesting because while Denae Guerrera is not uh, a person with a disability, the rest of the cast around her, not all of them, but several of them, were actors with disability. And as you mentioned, Michael Patrick Thornton has done it. There's more recently been a whole uproar in England because the artistic director of Shakespeare's Globe, who is also a woman, has decided to play Richard III in a production, and she is not a person with a disability. So it's become a big flashpoint as to whether or not this character should be played by an actor with a disability or not. To me, the more interesting question about Richard, and it's not one that this production really wrestles with, is, you know, it's kind of like, is, is, is Richard depraved on account that he's deprived? I don't know. Um, you know, is it the fact that he is he has a person with a disability? And in, in reality, I think we know from the, the, the body, the, the skeleton that was found in the car park you know, cement some years ago that at best, he probably had a moderate case of scoliosis. That doesn't matter. We're not concerned with the historical facts in Richard III because Shakespeare was playing pretty fast and loose with those anyway. Um, but we have to know what what makes him this evil person. Is he born? Is he a bad seed? Or is he someone who has been so rejected and so disdained because of his disability that it is curdled into this, as you said, Jonathan, cynical cruel, double-dealing kind of persona. And I think either is fine, but I just felt, I feel like you need to make a decision if you're going to direct this play, who Richard is. And more so because, I think you might agree with me on this, Jonathan, Richard is by far the most interesting person in this play. And you can see why he thinks he should be king, because his brothers are idiots and drunks and louts. You know, um, he was, you know he, He's the smartest person in this play, until maybe he isn't, you know, maybe he outdoes himself with his cruelty. 
but it's such a flashy part, and you can get by with a lot of that. But if it's going to have a deeper impact on me, and again, this may be because I, too, have seen several productions and several interpretations, I want to at least know you had discussions about why is Richard the way he is. And I don't think we get to that at all in this production. Yeah, well, yeah, I would, I would, uh, I would certainly uh, uh, agree with that. Share that um, that same interpretation. Um, but we we both agree that it's a we've already said a a vigorous production, undeniably so. But the focus is very narrow, with a costume, scenic, and lighting palette that almost never strays beyond black and white, and a conscious choice by Hall uh, to reject pageantry. I mean, here is a play set in a royal court, and it also has battle scenes, and and none of these opportunities uh, are are fully fleshed out in a a way uh, Mm -hmm. that many of Shakespeare's history plays usually are. In short, this is a severe and grim interpretation about a diabolical figure who lies and murders his way to the top. Hall even has this Richard commit several murders not found in the play at all. And it seems to me that that's, well, um, overkill. <laughs> yeah, I, I actually think I agree with you that there's re- you know echoes to the, what he had done with the, the sort of slaughterhouse motif in Rose Rage. It also felt a little like Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And, uh, spoiler alert, actually <laughs> somebody is dispatched yes. with a chainsaw. With a chainsaw. <laughs> so, you know, because the, uh, the, the, the ensemble is wearing not just white kind of smock coats, which could be, I guess, either sort of a haunted insane asylum motif or butcher, butcher smock. You know, they're not really smocks. They're more like white lab coats. But then the kind of white hockey mask, plain mask sort of thing that's so familiar from so many horror films. So there's definitely, you know, this this sort of abattoir slash asylum, you know, feel haunted, you know, deadly asylum feeling to me. As I said, it's very stylish, but if the style is not rooted in, you know, it's like, I mean, they, what's the argument? Is Richard, in, you know, is he acting this way because he's just the most adept in a world full of insane people? I mean, you get the sense that his underlings are also a little, the, the way that they're played, you know, the ones who go to dispatch, um his brother George, Duke of Clarence, in the Tower, you know, they kind of are almost like murderous vaudevillians, like the droogs in uh, yeah, Clockwork they, they Orange. Are the, they, are, um, they are, as staged, they are the play's clowns, yes. Right, right. But is that representative of this world? It's like, is this entire world gone mad from the War of the Roses? Yeah. Is everyone here? Yeah. Or is it something specific about how Richard himself is, that he manipulates people into being this way. And, and you know, maybe I'm asking too much. <laughs> well, we, um, we, we never quite get an answer to that, to that right. question, and it's fundamental. You know, I mentioned uh, in my earlier remarks, I mentioned the music, and I wanted to, to uh, elaborate a little bit. It's overseen by John Trenchard and consists chiefly of English Renaissance religious music. Right. Even the Coventry Carol, a traditional Christmas favorite, most of it is vocal music, which is sung very capably by the ensemble. And surprisingly, it works rather well as, 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 uh, this is ironic, a lovely and soothing background to the onstage slaughter. Uh, but Trenchard also includes a few verses of drink, 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 from the 1920s American operetta, The Student Prince, and I found this a little more out of place 
<laughs> that I did that I did the, uh, the the medieval English music. There is, of course, also a snatch of "God Save the King" played on distorted rock guitar, and you know, since this familiar tune also is the American anthem, "Our Country Tis of Thee," it may be taken as a warning to us about putting our faith. It's political bullies. Yeah, and again, you know, I feel like I, I, I am trying to temper this with the idea that I have seen several productions, and some that I think did get more to the heart of who Richard is. I have to say I enjoyed it. I was not bored, and I think, again, if yep. you have a young person or anybody who has not really seen Richard III before, you could definitely do worse than take them to this. It's not stodgy. Um, it's not morose. Uh, one thing I really liked was the way that they had the transformation of Katie Sullivan as Richard, you know, and when the play starts, and she is a double amputee, um, I believe, I, I didn't realize this until I went back and looked, but she was seen several years ago at the Goodman in a play called The Long Red Road, which was directed by the um, the late Philip Seymour Hoffman. Uh, I believe she was born without her lower, both of her lower legs. So she starts kind of sitting on the, the floor of the stage as Richard, moves into a wheelchair, and eventually, you know, dons a series of prosthetics, including at the very end in the Battle of Bosworth scene, the, the, you know, the running blades, that, and she Blade, is a Paralympian, yeah. so she's very adept on those, and that those are called the horses, I thought was a really clever choice and a very smart choice. So we sort of see her becoming more, as Richard becoming more and more mobile, as, you know, as she as, as Richard is becoming more and more powerful <laughs> as, as monarch and dispatching everyone standing in his way. It is, as we both agree, a vigorous production, and you're quite right. It's also been the edited, so it plays in a little over two, including intermission, about two hours and 40 minutes, which is uh, relatively short for this play. And if you've never seen Richard III, this could be a a, 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 a good introduction to it. And a relatively short run. It does. And Carrie, I don't know whether this caught your attention or not, but this show is only, not counting previews, is only running like a month from its opening date, right. and that is what the schedule for Chicago Shakespeare Theater is for all their productions this this season. Whereas they used to run productions for 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 twelve weeks, for three months, um, and I'm wondering whether this has to do with the fact that the audience simply has not. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I suspect that may be part of it. You know, another regional Tony Award-winning theater in Chicago that also has been doing rather short runs is Court Theater. I did want to give a shout out to a classic play that they are doing, Antigone, which uh, is directed by their associate artistic director Gabriel Randall Bent, and that is only running through March second. Uh, if you can get a ticket, I highly recommend it. It is a beautiful uh, adaptation and translation by uh, the late uh, founding artistic director, Nicholas Rudall. And it's a piece that plays very much like a very strong choreo poem about the tragedy of Antigone. It's the last part of Port's uh, multi-year Oedipus cycle, which began before the pandemic with Oedipus Rex, continued last year with Gospel at Clonus, which I think, Jonathan, you and I talked about, and this is the concluding piece. Yeah. But I'm also, I mean, as beautiful as this show is, when I look and see that it's only running to March 2nd, I think, oh my gosh, I wish it were long. And that, I think, is an extension, even from what they had originally planned. Well, but Court Theater has uh, has typically, you know, from, from the, the date of the official opening, their shows uh, have only run uh, uh, four weeks. Uh, Chicago Shakespeare, this is a notable departure. True. 
they're yeah. standard length of run. So, right. yeah. And and we should mention that the Chicago Theater Week has also extended. I believe it's running an additional week through next week. You and I had talked about it, uh, I think, uh, in last week's program. So right. there are still opportunities to get out and show that there is, you know, love for theater, whether it's at larger houses like Chicago Shakespeare or at smaller companies. Um, but, yes, I, I uh, even though I might be a little lukewarm on some of the elements in Richard III, I definitely think it is worth it is well worth seeing, too, I think, if you're kind of trying to get a sense of Edward Hall's aesthetic. You know, it'll be interesting to see how that plays out over the, few, you know, over the years to come as he steps into the role. So, as Carrie mentioned, uh, Court Theater's Antigone is through March 2nd, and uh, Chicago Shakespeare Theater's Richard III continues through March 3rd. Carrie, Jonathan, thanks so much. Oh, you're welcome, Gary. You're most welcome. Always good to talk with you. We'll do it again next week. I'm Gary Zydek. You're listening to the Arts Section. A new exhibit that takes inspiration from Greek mythology but is interested in exploring contemporary themes just opened in one of Chicago's most opulent settings. Twin Flame Double Ruin just opened at the River North neighborhood-based Driehaus Museum. It comes from Denmark-based artist Sif Itona Vesterberg. My name Sif is from Norse mythology, is the wife of Thor, the thunder god, and I grew up with mythology. I recently caught up with Vestaberg as she was finishing up the installation of her U.S. debut exhibition. She says mythology has always interested her, and it often inspires her work. I used to listen to them on, uh, on tape recordings until the tapes were, like the magnet dust uh-huh. came off the tape and, <laughs> and they started sounding weird. Ever since I was a kid, I loved emerging into to all different kinds of mythology. So, so in a way, it's been a companion as, as far back as I remember. But, but I think with, for many years during um, my studies at the academy, I was very much uh, interested in geology. And at some point, I started reintroducing mythology because so many of the Greek myths were about balance and being in a relationship where you are negotiating with nature, you're communing with nature in a way, there's punishment if you you do something wrong, there will be consequences. And, And also it is just the love of these grand stories with death and sex and jealousy and vengeance and also a like, plethora of female figures that are not present in Christianity that you can be uh, you can be a war goddess or you can be a, a wise witch that knows the plant realm or you can there, there are so many female characters that are not present in, in Christianity. And that was what drew me to your work originally. I mean outside of outside of the sculptures and the materiality of them which which sort of, you know, caught my eye first. This is Stephanie Cristello. She's the curator of Twin Flame Double Ruin. I'm Greek, so, you know, part of my upbringing, too, was just looking at these, like, little statues that my uh, had all over the house and all of the different gods, and it, w- it, formed, it formed my viewpoint of the world from a very early mm. age, that nature, any phenomenon that exists, is sort of explicable through personification. Mm. And I found that to be a really beautiful way, like a charming way of looking at the world. The idea for Twin Flame, Double Ruin, was inspired by a myth taken from Plato's Symposium. 
the myth of Zeus wanting to punish humankind because he's he's bored with humans and he uh, he he's contemplating whether he should just eradicate them altogether. And then he realizes like if if there are no humans, there'll be no one to worship. So maybe he'd find another way to punish them. And he ends up splitting up the the beings that was that before had two heads and two sets of arms and legs to make us internally unwhole and always searching for that other part of you. And he also resonated that that would make you work harder and it would make you, you would always be yearning for something incomplete or something something that you didn't have. And that would also be a, a fuel or a way to keep you stuck in always working at achieving something that's basically unattainable or that the chances of getting what you want are are slim if you're searching the whole planet for that lost lost uh, other half. The new exhibit is the latest in a Driehaus Museum contemporary art series. Cristello remembers thinking Vesterberg's work would be a perfect fit for the museum's unique space. So we started talking about the show maybe two or three years ago, just after I had closed the Theodora Allen exhibition here at the Driehaus Museum. It's part of a series that they do called A Tale of Today, which features contemporary artists housed within the Driehaus Museum. So all site-specific or site-responsive works or installations and interventions. I had just been to Copenhagen to do a talk with another few artists and was introduced to SIF's work. I thought it would be an amazing fit here at the museum. So I emailed you, I think, pretty immediately afterward, but you'd never been to Chicago, let alone the museum. So we did a lot of the, the sharing of this space online, which is quite hard to do because it's such a unique building. Mm-hmm. And there were some questions about that, but then I proposed yeah. a list of works that I thought would um, would really activate the space, and we kind of went from there, back and forth. Unlike a more traditional contemporary art gallery, the Driehaus Museum is based in a Chicago landmark, the Nickerson Mansion on Erie Street. Built in 1841, the structure was known as the Marble Palace. Cristello says curating an exhibit in a historic house like this comes with some challenges, but she relishes them. It takes a very specific artist and a very specific body of work to be able to engage this space appropriately. But I'll have other ideas that are maybe better suited for a white cube gallery, something that's much more clean and institutional and sparse. Uh, but I have to say, like, I have the most fun when I have to wrestle with the architecture. It's a much more rewarding, I find, like as a curator, it's a much more rewarding experience to do a contemporary project or a contemporary exhibition in a space that already has so much history that you're not starting from complete scratch, but you're, you're more wrestling with uh, what's already there. And that leads to, at least for me, like it forces a creative solution to come because there is no other option. Like you can't drill into the wall, you can't, um, you know, there's certain things that you just can't do, but those limitations for me, have led to some of the best exhibitions or the most rewarding exhibitions that I've worked on. If you're just tuning in, I'm Gary Zydek. You're listening to the Arts Section. I'm talking to curator Stephanie Cristello and artist Sif Itona Vesterberg about their new exhibit, Twin Flame Double Ruin, which just opened at the Driehaus Museum. Vesterberg thinks the Twin Flame still resonates today, given the isolating nature of modern life. 
it's hard not to feel a little bit lost in this day and age where we're disconnected from nature. We have this feeling that everything is changing, the climate is it's it's working against us, and we know that we're to blame for 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 climate change as well. So so there is this sort of verfremdung that we're I don't know what's the English word for. Mm-hmm. Alienation, I think it's just that you're feeling a little bit lost, perhaps, to be alive in this day and age. And and I think that using that myth was a way also to try to relate that very personal feeling of feeling lost to into an environmental uh, contemplation about the concept of being lost or or being connected. And and the bronze sculptures sculptures in the show are they have that in common that they're all sort of reaching to. They're reaching for something. They're they're reaching so much that their limbs are transforming into something almost tentacular, and in this in this constant state of trying to reach for some for something that yeah, sort like of a requires longing. a change. Yeah, it's a longing so deep that it undoes the body exactly. and the sculptures. Yeah. And for me, being more familiar with the history of the museum and the collection, what was resonating uh, from Sif's work is that at the sort of turn of the 20th century, there's this huge disenchantment that is happening throughout society and culture. Um, the late 1800s into the early 1900s being also when societies and cities were feeling the effects of industrialization, where there's just coal burning in the air, the landscape around them is completely changing and becoming taller than humans and basically outside of a human scale both emotionally and physically mm-hmm. and that disenchantment from industry manifests in the late 1800s through various artistic movements that start to really focus on a return to nature whether that's the arts and crafts movement or symbolism sort of looking back to mythology and sources from the Middle Ages and medieval era, trying to grasp something that somehow is lost. Nature becomes a huge part of that. Like You see it in the wallpapers, in the frescoes, in all of the reliefs of the house. There's this desire. If you can't interact with a forest, you can carve one. Or mm. if you can't have a garden, can it be woven into a tapestry or a rug mm. that surrounds your room? And I found that that desire for an immersion to be sort of a perfect context for these sculptures because what we're learning, or what I learn at least through it, is that things haven't really changed over the centuries. Mm. The problems are the same, the the causes might be different, but the actual issues are really similar. And with, if you look to ancient mythology as well, there's a blueprint of that feeling of alienation Mm. or loneliness that has existed far beyond you know, the reason is not because of technology it, it's sort of a part of the human condition that we're going to continuously feel and it's a timeless emotion right. yeah a mix of Vesterberg sculptures will be on display including several made from one of her favorite materials aerated concrete the copenhagen-based artist is able to create pieces that look like they've been chiseled in marble I work with aerated concrete. They are basic building blocks in in Denmark, where I live. You can buy them at the at the Home Depot, Bauhaus. <laughs> at the Bauhaus. Yeah, yeah, it's called Bauhaus in Denmark. 
And it was sort of a coincidence that led me to start working with them to begin with. But but they are always standardized in the same the same size. And then I cut into them with linoleum cutters and sand them and transforming transform them into something that's completely different than what their original purpose was. They look like carved marble. Right. I mean, especially in this museum from afar, because I don't know if you know the nickname for the Nickerson Mansion, where the Driehaus Museum is, for the longest time was the Marble Palace, because everything is marble, the ceilings, the columns, the walls. Vesterberg is hoping visitors who come check out the exhibit engage with the work with an open mind. When I really feel like an exhibition for me has succeeded, it's when if a viewer gets a personal and intuitive experience from being with the work that isn't necessarily something you can describe by using words, but something that happens physically or something that sparks a connection or a curiosity. I think sometimes I just hope that what art, what art is, can do is, is to sort of cheat, cheat its way around language so that you won't be, you won't be met by that language barrier that want to explain everything, categorize everything and understand it or break it down or make it useful or productive or whatever. That I can exist on a on a different plane where you where you get an intuitive experience that you don't necessarily have a name for, but that comes from investing time in it and 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 being open to it. So so my ultimate goal is is always that people will be willing to open their minds and bodies to to actually meeting meeting with the art and and also to invest their time. Then then that's a huge success for me. That's Sif Itona Vesterberg. Her exhibit, Twin Flame, Double Ruin, will be on display at the Driehaus Museum through April 14th. Go to driehausmuseum.org for more information. And that's going to wrap up this edition of the Arts Section. But remember, you can always find more arts and culture online by visiting the show's website, theartssection.org. There you can find past episodes and individual features available to listen to on demand anytime you want, plus pictures and links that go along with all the features you hear on the show. My name's Gary Zydig. I hope you'll join me again next Sunday morning at 8 a.m. right here on 90.9 and 90.7 FM for another edition of the Arts Section. Until then, I hope you have a great week. Thanks for listening. They just aren't swell enough You're much too much And just too very, very To ever be In Webster's Dictionary And so I'm borrowing a love song From the birds To tell you that You're marvelous too much Marvelous for words.